This evening's talk is about mindfulness. And we'll begin the talk with a few moments as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gotama. So settle in to your seat. And close your eyes if that's the way you usually sit. Toward the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gotama, the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by the words, these words, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here, where and how you are. Just who do you think you are, anyway? The Bodhisattva, the just-about-to-be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of investigation, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind, Siddhartha Gotama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response To Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, in his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingers of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara 
was defeated, never again to have any power over the Buddha. And so we sit, each and all of us, and maybe not always quite like the Buddha sat on that night 2,500 years ago, but we sit, we practice with sincerity and determination. At home, alone, maybe with your sangha, your practice community, and now here in retreat with this practice community. As awakening beings, we practice, as we practice, these particular, the particular qualities of heart and mind that were all so perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree. As we practice, these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop, deepen, and mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we keep on practicing. This evening we'll explore the quality or the factor of mind that's really the most fundamental underlying factor of our practice, mindfulness. Whether your practice right now is rooted in insight, vipassana, metta, samatha, concentration practice, or another aspect of the many practices that uh, are offered in the Dharma, through the, through the Dharma. As we explore together this evening, allow the words to be a touch point or a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself, which is facilitated by <clears throat> what I like to call listening from the heart rather than listening from the head. In support of this, it's helpful to relax deeply in and through the body. So let's just take a moment now and uh, drop into your body with a, a bright, easy, relaxed attention. Relaxing from head to toe. Letting the whole body, heart, and mind deeply relax into a very simple, direct presence. A simple, direct presence and an open mind, open heart. Simply hearing. So mindfulness. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being like a precious gem and that it's supported by seclusion, impartiality, and renunciation. The very conditions, in fact, that we have here on retreat. 
a pervasive and deep mindfulness along with a calm, concentrated mind are really key factors for the mind and the heart to ripen into the letting go that's necessary for awakening. I often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all the factors of mind necessary for awakening. And in fact, really, the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's really the factor of mind that gives birth to all of the other factors necessary for liberation. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. So maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. We could say mindfulness is the chief mother. And when it's really, really begins to be established in us, it's the ingredient that offers us our greatest protection. The Pali word for mindfulness is sati. And sati is sometimes translated as memory or to remember. So if you break that word down, remember, reconnect, to connect or to reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our strong, habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but rather to remain resting in the inertia of our habits. Once in a Dhamma discussion with friends a number of years ago, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? And this was quite a long time ago before the mindfulness movement began, which is quite strong now uh, in many places. And I think it's a very good question because it's such a common word these days, so common that some of its depth and some of its potency has dissipated to some degree. So what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? By the way, I think it's a very good thing that it's out in the world and being explored in all the various ways that it is. I think it's a very positive uh, exploration that's going on and practice for many people. So what makes it a spiritual practice, though? the great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is just this. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. Meaning in this case, absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness. Really being receptive to 
what is without, and this is important, without the forethought of concepts, past experience, ideas of how we think it is or how it should be or how it could be. As Krishnamurti once said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. This relationship to experience is sometimes called the don't know mind. With this great intimacy of mindful presence, opening us to understanding the way it really is, which may appear so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in the inertia of our old habits, but to meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come close and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects, going right into the object. And yet, at the same time, it's not a sticky, fixed connection. Mindful attention is clear, fluid, and it lights on an object just long enough and just deep enough to know it. Mindfulness is the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And I'm going to repeat that. Mindfulness is a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, purely receptive in its relationship to whatever's presenting itself in the moment. And of course, we pay attention to a whole range of experience, including things that we usually do quite mechanically. Breathing, walking, bodily sensations, the body moving, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, thinking. We pay attention to phenomena that's pleasant, that might be wonderful and easy to be with. And we give attention to experience that's unpleasant, that might be difficult to be with. We open to it all. No parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. Mindfulness is about living in the action. Living in the action of the body, heart, and mind. Living in the present moment's experience. In a sense, we forget our self. We, in a sense, we lose our self in what is. So there is just what is. Without anything added, 
or needing to be added, without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. With mindful awareness, we have the possibility of not thinking, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. The moment we think, I'm doing this or I'm doing this, we're creating or we're recreating a sense of a separate self, creating a separation, a disconnection from the reality of the way of things. And we're living in an idea the idea of I, the idea of me and mine, instead of living in the action. The magic, so to say, and the great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of illusion, out of delusion directly into reality. Without it, we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things. And we get caught again and again and again in the reactivity or the attachment to these not clearly seen appearances. The result being that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. The Venerable Analayo puts it this way in his book uh, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. And this is from Venerable Analayo. The element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for Satipatthana as an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses the contents of experiences nor compulsively reacts to them. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. This technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practicing in this way, bare awareness of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. Important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. No matter who who we are, where or how we live, All of us, every one of us, want to live with ease. All of us want happiness. And it seems that most of us hope, and maybe even assume, that much of our 
life experience at any given time is kind of permanently in place. And of course, from myriad perspectives, we, again, probably all of us to some degree, from various perspectives, want life to suit our passing fancies, our expectations, and our deepest desires. And as it is in relationship to this, most people spend most of their time and energy trying to accomplish all of this through external experiences. By getting this or that, or him or her, doing this and that, going here and there. And we go for, we try for sustaining satisfaction and contentment through the constantly changing world of our senses and our thoughts, as well as through the myriad constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our lives. And as many or most of you know, at least to some degree, and at certain at some times, really none of this really totally works. The Buddha spoke about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure. He said quite a number of times that happiness arises when we're mindful. That's pretty simple. Not so easy, but it's a pretty simple. Happiness arises when we're mindful. So we take the Buddha's words to heart and look closely in order to sense and see and know our experience directly. It's through our our meditation practice that mindfulness is cultivated. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we really truly bring our attention to the present moment. And we practice this over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Once we relinquish the belief that there's a a more spiritually perfect or right or useful moment than the one we're in, then we have really, truly, and wholly embraced our life and infused it with the energy for awakening. Our practice is one of deep intimacy, really the deepest intimacy with our experiences, which as practice develops, as it expands and as it matures, it becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, with all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware intimately aware of it, whatever it is, in the moment. See and know what is, what really truly is. How is it in this present moment? And this present moment? And this present moment? 
This is really a basic foundation of all forms of Buddhist practice. How is it in experiencing the eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch? How is it in experiencing the mind? How is it really? Not what you hope it is or what you want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be. How is it really? A mindful relationship to our present moment's experience is what allows clarity and true understanding, insight to arise. To just simply and naturally arise. Which it inevitably does. We don't do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not far away at all. It's right here. It's ever-present, immediately close. Always and everywhere, right here, right now. And it's our greatest protection. A number of years ago, I was teaching a, I think, a four-week class or eight-week class. don't remember how long it was. Once-a-week class here in Taos and um, on mindfulness. And we'd meet, uh, and and then they would go home for the week after the class and uh, practice with what we'd been uh, looking at and discussing and practicing with that week. And then they'd come back the next week and everyone would share something of their week uh, at home of practice, with practice. So one evening, uh, uh, a student uh, in the class came in and she said, she said, this morning I was watering my garden. I watered my garden many, many, many times. But this morning, when I watered my garden, it was as though for the first time, felt like it was the first time I ever watered it. And then her mind took a big leap. And she said, how have we all survived so long without being mindful? Terrible things are decided and done when mindfulness isn't present. And when I... uh, re-looked at that this evening and remembered the class. This was quite a few years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago. I thought, how appropriate right now. Right now in our culture, in the world. The Buddha Dhamma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. In fact, if we're not bringing our full attention to the present moment, if we're not mindful, we're living at a distance from experience, living at a distance from life itself, which really just keeps the circle, the reactive cycle of conditioned habit patterns going round and round and round. Another way of looking at this is, without mindfulness, it's as though we're looking through binoculars that are out of focus. 
our perspective, our perception, it's blurred. We experience life through the filters of ideas, the filters of preconceptions, opinions, judgments, hopes and fears, and similar past experiences. So, for instance, an experience that probably each of you has had at some point in your life. You meet someone new, someone you've never met before at all, and you don't see them as they actually are. You see them in relationship to your thoughts about them, how much you think you like them, or are attracted to them, or how much you think you don't like them, or aren't attracted to them. Or maybe they remind you of somebody else. So you see this new person in relationship to the similar qualities you're thinking about. Or you see this new person in relationship to how you hope they are. Or maybe what you want from them. Or what you hope you can get from them. Or hope you won't get from them. With all of this, and there's more possibilities, of course, but with all of this, we're really not experiencing this person that you've just met for the very first time, just not experiencing them simply as they are. Have you ever gotten to know someone and found out that they really weren't at all like you imagined them, uh, uh, your imagined ideas about them when you first met them? Without mindfulness, everything we perceive is like this. Everything we see, taste, hear, touch, smell, think, is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thoughts and habit patterns. Meditation practice that's grounded in mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a clear, sharp focus to really see things as they truly are, as though for the first time, without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with what uh, is often called beginner's mind. So a personal story about one of my grandsons. Uh, He's now uh, 20, but uh, this is not about now. This is when he was two and a half years old. And I was visiting him and my son and daughter-in-law. They were living in Pennsylvania at the time. My daughter-in-law and my grandson and I were out for a walk behind where they lived, going down the hill uh, behind their house. And on the ground were a bunch of pine cones. My grandson picked up a pine cone. He'd never seen one before. So he picked it up. He looked at it for a while. He turned it every which way, looking and looking and looking. Then he stuck it up to his nose, and he smelled, turned it all around, smelling, smelling, smelling. Stuck his tongue out, licked it all over the place. (laughs) I mean, he really investigated that pine cone. And my daughter-in-law and I were watching him, something I never forgot. It was like a great teaching for me. 
And then, uh, as a good grandmother and a good mother, I guess, are supposed to do, we told him, that's a pine cone. And he looked up at us, kind of quizzically, but he was a good boy. And he said, he repeated, pine cone. But then he went back to figuring out what really what it is, you know, <laughs> smelling, tasting, touching, seeing, etc. What a lesson for me. His fresh, open, beginner's mind. This is an attitude, not that we're going to taste everything we find outside and all that, but you know. (laughs) This is an attitude of mind that we can learn, or maybe more accurately, relearn. And bring it into back into our life, bring it into our life and bring it back into our life. It's transformative. It's transformative and potentially deeply healing. One of the definitions of these practices and these teachings is that they're the best medicine. The best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. There are four domains of mindfulness, four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. And so this evening we'll spend a bit of time uh, exploring the first of these domains, which is paying attention to the body in the body, just the body as such. Not one's ideas about it or interpretations of it, but just the body in the body. And of course there are many and varied and specific aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. One of our primary orientations, as you know, one of our primary orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible through mindfulness of breath is potentially profound. In making the simple sensations of the in and out breath at the nostrils or the sensations of the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly uh, or at the heart center or the sensorial experience of breath coming into and moving through and back out of the whole body, with any of these, I've been, myself, deeply grateful and even awed at the depth and the breadth of the purification of the heart and mind that happens with mindfulness of breath. As well as for what comes to be sensed, seen, and understood with a simple and careful attention to this very direct experience of breath. So, now for a moment, just close your eyes. And let the attention drop into the breath. 
mindfully absorb into the simple sensations of in-breath and out-breath, either in the nostril area or the rising and falling movement of breath in the belly or the chest area, or the whole body breathing. Just pick one, whichever one you're most connected to with your practice. Mindfully absorb into these simple sensations of an in-breath and an out-breath with as little self as possible. And now just very simply notice, are you trying to control? Are you trying to manipulate the breath? Are you, or are you simply allowing the breath to breathe itself? And it's very important to notice this without judgment. Notice it without self-recrimination. Just simply notice. In a moment of clear seeing, There is often a sense of relief. As a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. So, the body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures not our ordinary, everyday, quite casual way of noticing our bodily activity, but a closer, more intimate, ongoing, and more careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and the various movements in the body of getting up and down, flexing and extending the arms and the legs turning, lifting, carrying, even bringing mindfulness of the body and the body to the experiences of falling asleep and waking. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an eye behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement. Beginning to see the postures and the movement 
of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be just simply known as standing? Sitting just simply sitting? Walking is just simply walking? Without the layer of I am or the internal feeling of this is me walking, sitting, standing. Once, uh, many years ago now, one of my Burmese teachers, Sada Upandita, asked me in a practice meeting, uh, he said, is there a man or a woman or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking and sitting and, or standing or any bodily sensations? Well, in that practice meeting, for just a brief moment, I was caught, quite caught by the question, which in retrospect I realized was a kind of test uh, of my practice at the time. But very quickly, in the midst of this practice meeting with him, there was a spontaneous reflection and a response to Saida Upandita. No, nope, there's no woman no man, no anybody known when I'm directly connected with and mindful of walking or whatever bodily phenomena is happening. So a good observation and a question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body and the body, we also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. So, for instance, the intention to, followed by action or inaction, In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, where the energy of volition begins, where it starts from, and how it feels in our body. I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way stand up or not stand up or sit or lift an arm, or take a step, or speak particular words. If we think and feel that our actions come solely from the place of a separate, isolated I, or me, we'll eventually, or maybe quite quickly, experience some degree of suffering. Our actions of body, mind, and speech are always a response or a reaction in relationship to something that occurred in our immediate field of experience, which may also be overtly or, or subtly related to some past experience. 
a mindful awareness of the body in the body blossoms when there's a very natural, non-conceptual, intuitive, growing understanding of the subtler causes of suffering that begin to take hold, which can then open our heart to an unimaginable expanse of compassion in relationship to ourself and in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body? Quite a number of years ago now, I had a very deeply dedicated longtime practitioner, uh, his name was Roy, who right up until his dying moment and he died of AIDS here in Taos. One afternoon when I was sitting with him in the hospital uh, as he was lying in his bed, and I was sat with him almost every day when he finally went into the hospital. And at that point there wasn't much left of his body. So we were sitting there, and at one point he, or he was lying down and I was sitting there, at one point he stretched his arm up overhead up towards the ceiling. No speaking. We did speak together, but not at that moment. He stretched his arm up to the ceiling, and he started turning it one way and then the other way, round and back and round and back, and looking at it really carefully, with great interest. And it went on for a while. And then he said, in a very cool and yet odd way, He said one word. He said, wow. That's all he said. The form, the posture, and the movements of the body are totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions, just as, for instance, the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin, or the liking or disliking of some experience, or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment. Choices are made, but in truth they too, are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered and intimate attention to the body itself, its movements and the process of intention that we begin to experience this truth? The next domain of mindfulness of the body that the Buddha points us towards is giving attention to the parts of the body. 
And as it's classically taught, there are 32 parts in the classical teachings and practice. Hair, skin, muscles, bones, and all of the various internal uh, organs and fluids. In your practice here in retreat, you most likely notice them when they make themselves known, such as the intestine, the bladder, heart, lungs, maybe maybe the liver, mucus, saliva, etc., etc. The classical 32 parts of the body practice isn't one that's very often taught here in the West, though it can be actually uh, quite a powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's ideas and identification with this body as being a solid entity and it being mine, being me. I have no doubt that you have noticed many parts of your body even during these first few days of the retreat. But how often have you noticed them in a mindful way? So how identified are you with the hair on your head or the lack of it? How do you attend to the experience of your intestine and the digestive processes therein? or to a moment or many moments experiencing the heart? How do you experience your skin, this bag of flesh that all of the various holds, all the various contents of the body? How, how do you experience your nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, mucus, or any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness. A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body, without the layers of ideas and interpretations and concerns about it just the body as a body. This can really be quite a powerful aspect of practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual ideas of solidity and identification with one's own body and in relationship to other bodies as well. Some words from the Buddha about this. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body Internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi or a meditator abides contemplating the body as a body. So let's consider for just a a couple of moments, how do you identify yourself? For most of us, if not all of us, A primary and large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa, the Pali word that translates as material form or 
materiality. So consider this for a moment in relationship to yourself. I'm a woman. Or I'm a man. I'm transgender. I'm thin. Fat. Not too thin. Not too fat. I'm tall. Short. I'm of average height. I'm good-looking. Beautiful. Ugly. Plain. Attractive. Unattractive. I'm dark-skinned. I'm light-skinned. I have good skin. I have bad skin. My nose is large. It's too big. Small. I have a cute nose. I'm wrinkled and old and weak. I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned. And on and on and on it goes. With all of these personal identities really constantly changing over the years or just within a few days or just within moments in our mind. Even though we engage tremendous effort, energy, and time in clinging to these various identities. There's really, really no place to hang our identity hat for more than just a few moments. If that, really no place to rest in these constantly changing relative perceptions and ideas of who we think we are. So just a very, very simple, personal uh, story about this. Uh, In the last few years, I've shrunk uh, two or more inches. And I have always uh, identified myself as an person of average height. And now I'm a short person. And I'm shrinking daily, more and more and more. So I'm going to be a tiny person probably at some point. (laughs) What to do? Nothing much I can do about it. (laughs) Another important and profoundly insightful uh, aspect of mindfulness uh, that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are in essence no different than any other form, no different than any other rupa. Our human form is of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. So potentially a non-ordinary way, we could say, to cut through the concept of this body as a solid, static entity. To cut through the I am identification. The Buddha offered uh, a profound teaching and a very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching. And if we sincerely and seriously take it up, It can be a window opening us to the direct experience, discernment, and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality, the ultimate reality of form, of rupa, 
one aspect of the reality of how it really is. How or what this body, as well as every other form, really is. The teaching and the practice is about discerning the four great essentials, or the four great elements, earth, water, fire, and air, through directly experiencing these specific characteristics of each of these elements in the body in relationship to sensations. When you're sitting, when the body's moving, and when you're standing, or when you're lying down. So I'm going to, this evening, just mention these characteristics, uh, and then at some point... uh, Fairly soon, we'll ha- I'll offer a guided uh, meditation uh, with this particular teaching and practice. So the characteristics, and the characteristics are what we experience. We don't experience the concept of earth, water, fire, and air or wind. Those are concepts. So the experiences are the characteristics. The characteristics of earth, the earth element are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The characteristics of the water element are flowing and cohesion. The characteristics of the fire element are heat or warmth and coolness or coldness. And the characteristics of the air element or the wind element are supporting and pushing. (coughs) And you experience this all the time. But you probably, some of you may focus on it and really know it, but not so much probably. It's our nature. It actually is our nature. So we'll explore this a little more deeply at another point. As experience, not not to talk about it as an idea. How intimately, how mindfully connected are you to these really most basic and universal experiences, this body in its elemental nature? Essentially, no different than any other form. The last instruction uh, from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Seemingly, not something we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting. But the truth of the matter is, there are many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Insects, maybe birds, maybe other creatures, and certainly many, many corpses of plants and trees, and maybe even flowers. Maybe not quite yet for flowers here up here, but maybe some from last year. Corpses of flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and decompose, or to just deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, it is possible to observe this directly. I've been in retreat in 
uh, various places over the years and at times uh, quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and grasses and continued over time to observe them go through all of the changes that things do as and after they die. And once when I was on a retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod in Massachusetts where we rented a house on the shore of the ocean for a couple of months uh, to practice together, I had the great good fortune, uh, maybe it's only good fortune in the world of uh, Dharma practice, but I had the great good fortune to come upon a dead seal on the beach. And when I first found that one, then after that, every day for a month, I walked down to that body and I sat with it for a while, observing and letting in the process of decomposition and decay, which in this particular instance was happening quite quickly because it was being helped along by the many, many seagulls who found the seal's decaying flesh uh, to be very delicious food. This daily practice during that month-long retreat was a heart-mind-changing experience for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho, who until a few years ago was the abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England, who uh, is the most senior Western monk in the uh, Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah. He tells about a time when he was living in the monastery in Thailand, and he asked if he would be able to spend uh, part of a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, although he said they were pretty reluctant, but they did they couldn't tell him no because he was a monk. He said that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged. Actually, he used the word fully assaulted. He said that the first thing that hit him was the smell, which he said almost drove him to run out the door. I think... uh, Morgues in Thailand aren't air-conditioned. There's probably less smell here. But there it was pretty hot in there. So the smell just said practically drove him out the door. But he stayed. He stayed and he stayed mindfully present. And he said little by little it became tolerable. He said it became just a smell. Just a scent. He spoke about his long-standing and very deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart during that time, as he took in all the various stages of decay that were all around him. And he mentioned that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and he saw all sorts of parts, as he put it, which he found uh, quite puzzling at first. And then he quickly realized that, uh, that the bloated body that was in front of him could actually explode at any moment, which he said he dearly hoped it would not while he was in there. <laughs> and it didn't. <laughs> he said that when he went back out on the street, he saw people in a radically 
new way with a radically wide open heart. It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, living and non-living, are mortal. And we're so attached to forms, probably first and foremost, our own form, and also all sorts of other forms. For many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire and attachment to, for instance, forms that please us, forms that we're close to and care deeply about, forms that are beautiful to us, or forms that are amusing or interesting to us, or simply the taken-for-granted, the many taken-for-granted familiar forms. I think that what is actually strange and amazing is that fairly often we think and act as if we and they won't change, won't die. Which, if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or maybe not so subtle tension and stress in our heart, mind, and body. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again. And what we find when we connect and really look carefully in the body are sensations. Much of the drama of our thought and feelings and actions begin with sensations. Through mindfulness, we train ourselves to be in the body to receive them, to be present with the sensations of our body is not an act of will. It's really an act of unconditional acceptance, which of course is one aspect of metta. One, it's an act of unconditional acceptance with grace and at least some degree of equanimity. This acceptance implies not fighting or resisting what's presenting itself, not wanting things to be different, and not concealing or hiding from the moment's experience in the body. In such moments, we feel and intuitively know our activity as belonging to life. Some very simple, very ordinary examples that relate to our life here in retreat, and of course 
also outside of a retreat setting, in relationship to this. We might wash our dishes as an act of generosity and love. In that sense, as a holy act. We open the door, clearly seeing and sensing and knowing what the wrist and the hand is doing. Maybe we feel our body contract, turning away from cold, or maybe turning away from the hot sun. And we catch ourselves, and consciously, with mindful awareness, rise up to meet it. The choice to be mindful, to be mindfully aware, is often an act of some degree of courage. The essential practice is to return to whatever presents itself in our experience from moment to moment, to feel and to know the actual physical sensations of our aliveness. Someone once said, and I think it may have been the famous dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, The body is tremendously homesick for us, and it waits patiently for our return. And though we may have ignored its invitations for many years, when we do say yes, it's immediately available and full of life and know-how. And all of a sudden, we find that we really need no training to be fully alive. That we only lacked the determination to feel our aliveness. The body is an excellent meditation subject. And it will always tell the truth. For instance, if you break a leg, the body is not going to give off a pleasant feeling. It doesn't have the uh, capability. <laughs> doesn't have the capability to get lost in the past or to project into the future. And it's the meditation object most that most easily bridges uh, the gap between formal and informal aspects of our meditation practice. Also, mindful presence in the body can often be quite a safe haven when thoughts or emotions are raging and maybe feeling too overpowering to be with. I think that we all experience, at least to some degree, that we're living in a time when the very rapid development of technology and the pace of our culture are making it more and more difficult to stay connected in our bodies. Consequently, the cultivating the intention to practice with this first domain of mindfulness becomes more and more important. Mindfulness practice is kind of like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of our practice, We each find the way. 
And because each of us has experienced specific conditioning along the way of our lives, many aspects of the path and its fruits uniquely emerge for each of us in relationship to our conditioning. The treasures, the fruits that we discover along the way are healing, beautiful, and the simple universal truths of the way of things. And this is what sets us free. So in closing the talk this evening, I'd like to offer you a wonderful uh, and inspiring instruction from the Buddha that, in fact, you can offer yourself any time. And this is... uh, this teaching is called an, A Single Excellent Night, and it, it's from the Majjhima Nikaya. I think I might put it up on the board so you can take a look at it and offer it to yourself anytime. <laughs> Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, With insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, By day, by night, it is in her, it is in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. And let's sit (coughs) silently for just a moment. 